Hello, and welcome to a quick note from the host of A Pine for True Crime. Tonight's production will include quite a mini curse word, specifically the F-bomb, as I am unable to contain my absolute hatred for Israel Keys. In fact, more than anyone, I hope he has worms in his butt for eternity. This has been your warning, and I hope you enjoy the show. Before I start the episode, I want to mention again that I got so much information from Maureen Callahan's book, and a large part of that is based upon transcripts from Israel Key's psychiatric wow, psychiatric evaluation. Um, So we have to keep in mind that almost all of the information we have about him, his background, his childhood, his crimes came directly from him. And he has proven on multiple occasions to be completely full of shit. So just keep that in mind. Israel Keyes was born on January 7th, 1978 to Heidi and John Jeffrey Keyes, who just went by Jeff, and grew up in Cove, Utah. He was one of 10 children who lived um, somewhat, shall we say, a rustic lifestyle, but it borderlined on neglect and abuse. Um, They lived completely off-grid. I'm talking like lived in tents. Um, The kids were all homeschooled. They memorized Bible scriptures. They drank peppermint tea uh, because that was Heidi's cure to damn near any ailment that her kids may have had. Like, no medicine, just take a bath and drink peppermint tea, which I will tell you, I drink peppermint tea to, you know, help a lot of things. But sometimes you need like an antibiotic or something. But she was like not having any of that. They grew their own food. They hunted, never went to a doctor or a dentist. In fact, um, Keys's toes were disfigured because all of the kids wore shoes that were too small. Um, so just to kind of give you an idea of like, when I say they lived, you know, kind of off grid, like I I mean it. Um, their parents were like anti-public education, anti-government, um, pretty much anti-everything except for the church. Um, you know, the kids didn't watch TV. They didn't listen to music. They didn't have any kind of normal modern childhood for that time with the exception of going to church. And they were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, As someone who belonged to that church at one time in my life, I have to tell you that's probably the first fucking mistake that they ever made in creating the monster that is Israel Keys. Um, As the second to the oldest of the children, Keys was kind of the leader of the kids. He cooked and he sewed and he braided his sister's hair. You remember that? Um, yeah, if you didn't listen to the episode about Samantha Koenig, go do that real quick and then come back. Um, because some of these parts of this episode might not make much sense to you. So the Keys family leaves uh, Utah. They quit Mormonism. No one knows why. Nobody ever said. And they moved to Colville, Washington. And when Keys was around 12 years old, they joined a church called the Ark, which was chock full of white supremacists. Perfect. Keys was like, oh, yeah this is my jam. Um, like he really latched on to this group, uh, really kind of found himself. And interestingly enough, in later interviews, neither Keyes nor his mother would include the church in their recounts, um, like at all. They just breezed right past that. And the pastor at the time, his name was Dan Henry, was like, yeah, I don't really remember if the Keyes attended or not, um, but maybe. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, 
Okay, damn. Um, you want to know who else attended the ARC? Chevy and Shane Kehoe. Um, who's that? Okay, these were uh, gun-obsessed white supremacist neighbors of the Keys that Israel likely broke into homes with, who were also involved in a shootout with the Ohio State Highway Patrol troopers in Wilmington in 1998. Let me just pause for a second and say, I promise it doesn't matter what area of the country I am researching. Someone integral to the story has a connection to Ohio. It, it happens so often. Um, like, I'm moving. It's something is always happening like that. It's wild. Uh, but most notably, uh, Chevy was convicted along with Daniel Lee in 2005 of the murders of a gun dealer from Arkansas. His name was William Mueller and his wife, Nancy, and his stepdaughter, eight-year-old Sarah Elizabeth Powell. Um, what I'm about to say next is really hard to hear. So I just wanted to kind of give you a heads up about that um, because she is an eight-year-old little girl. Uh, but reports allege that she was tortured with electric cattle prods while she simultaneously had a plastic bag duct taped over her head to get her to tell her where William, her stepfather, had hid his money. Um, so yeah, reading that was definitely like a hand over the mouth thing um, because she had watched her mother be murdered and her stepfather. It's really bad. Um, so these two were not great, not great neighbors to have, uh, I would assume, because I believe at this time he was only about 22, um, Chevy, when they are accusing him of these murders. Now, um, Chevy maintains his innocence, but he is currently serving three life sentences, and Lee received the death penalty, which is not what family members of the victims had wished for. Like, they didn't want that, but he was executed last year. Lee also maintained his innocence um, quite literally until the end, as his last words were to say that they were killing an innocent man. Um, I believe that he said they were both in another state at the time that the murders occurred. So I haven't looked too much into it because it was um, a little horrifying. So maybe we will. Um, but they both said it wasn't us. Um, many people do question why Kehoe received a life sentence and Lee received the death penalty. And it's very much like an Austin Myers, Timothy Mosley situation. They murdered Justin back in Ohio in 2014. And while Mosley was actually the one to carry out the act of murder, Austin received the death penalty because he was the mastermind. Um, and I think he's the youngest person either to ever receive the death penalty in Ohio or currently is on. Like, currently the youngest person on death row. I, um, sorry about that. I just hit my laptop. Um, it's been a while since I went back and reviewed that one, so... Anyway, I just thought the similarities were, um, you know, kind of strange being both connected a little bit to Ohio. I mean, that was in Arkansas, but you know where I was going with that. So um, in the Mueller case, though, Kehoe is the one to have been said to murder the little girl because Lee said he wouldn't do it. And lastly, about Chevy Kehoe, um, a Washington motel manager in 1998 claimed that Chevy stayed there and introduced him to a man named Tim a few months before the Oklahoma City bombings. On the day of the attack, on April 19, 1995, the manager says that Chevy popped in about 45 minutes before the attack and asked to watch CNN. 
a little strange. Um, I know you're thinking that this all must be some kind of like movie plot that I'm going to tell you about, but terrifyingly, no, um, all true, alleged, allegedly true about the motel and allegedly true about the murders because, um, I did see really like briefly that there's a book or a documentary or a podcast or there's something, um, I know what it was. It was a radio special in 2005 about the innocence of uh, Chevy Kehoe and the murders of the Mueller family. I want to quickly say here that I have stopped and edited about seven times because my pets, as always, have been quiet for seven hours. And the moment, the moment that I sat down to do this, they both started acting completely ratchet, uh, like skidding across the floor, crumpling up the rug, just every time and I'm not stopping so you can hear my dog clicking around and um, shaking and you're just gonna have to be like that's adorable we love it Megan anyway uh, so those guys probably weren't the best neighbors for Israel keys to have in his formative years um, but that's who he had so he thought they were pretty cool uh, because he himself loved guns and these would be like most likely people that he uh, was his self with like he was most like himself with these guys because they were most like him you know uh with the exception of his little sister charity he would take her out into the woods and they would set fires together and shoot bb guns into houses and if nobody came out when they shot the bb guns they would just go in and steal stuff or sometimes they would move stuff around and then they would wait for the people to come home and be like yo what happened and probably giggle i don't know because they were young kids. Um, according to Keys, Charity went and like blabbed about all their activities. So he stopped hanging out with her. When he was about 14 years old, he started to realize that maybe he was a bit different because he tied a cat to a tree uh, and shot it. And then he laughed over the way that it was running around the tree. But nobody else thought it was funny because um, they weren't psychopaths. And he was like, oh, like maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm a little strange. Uh, he probably just thought that they were, like, weak because it's Israel Keys. Uh, but one kid, like, around his age was, like, bent over puking because he just shot a cat and was laughing about it. Um, so, yeah. There was, like, a little kind of the beginning of the hint of what we might be dealing with here. At the age of 15, he started building himself a cabin about a mile away from his parents. Um, they did have a house by this point because his dad had built it and Keys watched him and helped. And he moved in by himself at 16, spent most of his time learning how to remain still for hours hidden out in the woods so that he could, quote, kill anything with a heartbeat. Um, you know, he mostly killed deer because by this age he could completely um, gut and dress a deer on his own. But it became, like, not just about the animals any longer. Um, it was more about, like, the hunt for him. Like, the sitting, the waiting, the stalking. didn't really matter if he was killing animals. He just wanted to kill stuff. Um, but his little cabin life ended abruptly after he got caught shoplifting in the community at the bottom of the mountain that they all lived on. And his parents went into his cabin after this and they found all these stolen guns. So they made him move back home and return all the guns. And he got a little pissy with them because Heidi and Jeff had been encouraging him to hunt, which was illegal in the area. But they were like, uh, no shoplifting. 
like doing one illegal activity is cool because it benefits us and our family, but like no shoplifting, that's not cool. So shortly after that, Keyes decided that, you know what, he didn't really believe in organized religion anymore. Um, and when he told his parents, Jeff said, no son of mine, and he disowned him. Um, I, <clears throat> wow, excuse me. Heidi was still, you know, like, I'm never going to turn you away like I love my son kind of thing. Um, but Jeff was like, nah. So when Keith was 18, he was working in construction and he started dating the daughter of his boss. His parents were like, absolutely not. You can't see her, but you can write her letters, uh, which he did. And in the meantime, his sister, Autumn Rose, was having her own spiritual meltdown. And Heidi was like, pack it up, boys. And they moved again to Oregon. Now, this time, Keyes stayed in Washington for about a month until Heidi came calling, saying that the family needed his help, both in childcare and financially, because Jeff would, like, go off and, you know, be doing work stuff, um, and Heidi needed help with, like, all these kids, and he was the oldest boy, um, and, you know, she kind of, like, depended on him, relied on him a lot, but he was starting to kind of see through this, um, because he was an adult now and I was having this, you know, come to life moment, I guess, which is unfortunate for the rest of humanity. Um, but he stayed in Washington, uh, for about another month, that whole month. And then eventually he did end up moving to Oregon too. And when he got there, he helped his dad build a house in Maupin. And the whole intention of building this house was to sell it while all of the Keys children and Heidi and Jeff lived in tents. Like watching their dad and their brother build this nice house and they're living in tents. Um, in 1997, they all moved to New York because Jeff had brought, bought, excuse me, some property, but he signed the deed over to Israel. Um, I don't know why. I think in uh, Maureen's book, she says something about like hints that maybe it was like an apology. And I don't know if they got that from, um, Keyes, you know, and his evaluation. It doesn't matter. Uh, that's what happened. And then a year later, they all moved again to Maine. They became honeymakers and they went to live with the Amish. By this time, uh, Keyes was like, this is horseshit. I'm sick of my parents. Um, according to him, he called it like shopping for the right cult. They were just like bouncing from one organization to the other. And he said that they had already been drugged through quote, crazy white people with guns. And that he thought the Amish were, quote, silly. So Keyes is regretful that he hadn't lived his own life. He missed his girlfriend from Colville. He ended up getting his GED and joined the army in 1998. And his parents, who loathed the government, were, to say the least, uh, less than pleased. But let me explain um, really quickly a bit further. Israel Keyes did not have a birth certificate. None of them had birth certificates. None of them had social security cards um, because they never went to school. They weren't born in hospitals. Like... They really didn't exist in the uh, United States databases. He talked his way <laughs> into the U.S. Army. Like, yeah, just let me on in. Um, and they did. And some people think that he joined just to spite his parents, which uh, maybe. But despite looking like an absolute weirdo in the Army, because he came in, like, not knowing what football was. Zero knowledge of any type of movies, music, pop culture, uh, like none of that. Despite all that, like he really liked the army. He liked the structure. Um, you know, he was getting to experience like life, I guess. Um, 
normal things that were earth shattering to him, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, he got to spend about six months in Egypt and he had his first drink in the army. He did some other drugs. He actually, he snorted Coke, uh, like excessively for weeks and weeks, but ultimately he decided he couldn't control that and he needed to be in control at all times. So he just quit. He did continue to drink though. Um, and he lost a little bit of control with that cause he got himself a Dewey. So he never gave that up. Like his whole thing was, I want to be in control. He got a little out of control with the alcohol. Like he would get blackout drunk, but he kept doing that um, throughout his life. So whatever. He was careful not to drink about his family, but later on, um, he got a little too drunk while living with his Anchorage girlfriend, um, which would be his last girlfriend. We mentioned her in the episode about Samantha Koenig. Um, she's going to come up again later here, but just to kind of keep with this section here, um, got a little too drunk with her. And his internet chat history let her know that he was bisexual. He didn't divulge too many details about this, just that she confronted him. Um, he had known it about himself for quite some time, and that was that, which will explain some more things in a bit later on in the story. So anyway, um, in 2000, Keyes was engaged to his wholesome girlfriend from Colville, who wanted to wait until marriage to have sex, like very traditional, very, you know, she's they were very religious um, because he met her at a time where he was still kind of deep in his beliefs and his faith. Um, like he wrote in his uh, journal, I had impure thoughts about my girlfriend today or what the fuck ever. Um, so like he agreed. He was like, yep, me too. But then he met this girl online from Nia Bay. Um, and this girl had been through some trauma, which ultimately bonded her and Keys. And so for about two months, they spent all the time possible together, uh, drinking and smashing. And at the end of their tryst, she became pregnant. She called and told him and he was like, nope, not interested, get an abortion. And she said, I'm having the baby so you can just move on with your life. In the spring of 2001, his girlfriend visited him at Fort Lewis and she knew something was up. Like he didn't want her to meet any of the friends he had made and was just acting all wonky and like wouldn't take her calls after she left from her visit. So in May of that year, um, just months before they were supposed to get married, he tells her, you don't really know me at all. Um, I slept with somebody else and oh yeah, I don't believe in God. Um, so they broke up and he went back to the girl from Nia Bay. And in July, the army discharged him honorably, and he began living with his pregnant girlfriend and her son from a previous relationship on the Macaw Reservation, working in the Parks and Recreation Department, um, where people would yell things <laughs> to him, like, go home, white boy. Um, I, I, You might be wondering why I'm laughing, um, but it, I found it ironic because of his upbringing. That's all. Um, but part of him was like really happy, uh, that his baby was about to be part Native American and part black because he wanted to spite his racist ass parents, um, is a theory. And, um, they really didn't like have any part of their life. So it, he was probably correct. Uh, eventually he won them all over and, um, was described as a hard worker and a great father by all accounts from everybody on the reservation. 
on November 13th, 2002, when his daughter was, I believe, just like two weeks old, he learned that his dad died while on a trip from Maine to Indiana, where they were moving again. So he flew to Maine uh, to supposedly attend his father's funeral, but there's like no record of anything because, again, no birth certificate, no death certificate, no obituary, like nothing was filed. Um, a lot of people suspect that some of the Keys children, including Israel, were abused by Jeff, and some members of law enforcement had their suspicions that he had something to do with his father's death. So just, you can research more about that on your own if you choose. Uh, shortly after, his daughter's mother found out that she had uterine cancer, and uh, she had a hysterectomy, and as a result, she got addicted to the painkillers that they had given her. Um, she did eventually go to rehab and, like, you know, got straightened out and stuff, but in 2004, Keyes moved himself and his daughter to a home nearby on the reservation and was like, we're done. I'm not exposing her to all this chaos. And he dated about three other women in Nia Bay before uh, going online once more and meeting the woman that he would move to Anchorage with in March of 2007. But for about three months after his arrival in Alaska, he traveled all over the place uh, and into Mexico before he moved in with his new girlfriend. So God only knows um, and I'll take this opportunity to say, like, I'm going to probably mention three more times this book and tell you to read the book, but it has uh, a comprehensive account of his movements, his timeline. And I've heard over and over again that the true crime bullshit, um, did I, did I just say a weird, I don't know. I'll have to listen back to this. Um, let me add a flag. But anyway, that podcast that I was trying to say was true crime bullshit, um, I've heard in like so many places that that is the source, the place to go, um, you know, for like all of the big details. So if you really want to get immersed in this, you should probably listen to that. I want to listen to it at some point. I just wanted to get these done first because I didn't want to like, you know, you know how it is accidentally, uh, jock some style. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to get into all of that here, but there is like so many places <laughs> like Ohio, duh. Um, he's pretty much been all over the country and international. So that's terrifying. Anyway, I just want to, God bless. I just wanted to mention that again. Um, that yeah, if you want to know every place that he, well, every place that we know of, I should say, the information that he has given and has been pieced together by investigators. Um, you know, you can find that online. You can find it in these sources that I've already mentioned. So moving on. That was about, you know, a bit of backstory about him. Um, so we're going to fast forward to after his capture following Samantha Koenig's murder. And the most important thing to Keyes was getting an execution date. Like his deal was to give up some information in exchange for an expedited execution date and to minimize the media coverage because he did not want his daughter to be able to type his name into the internet and find out all of the details of his crimes, which he admitted was an unrealistic expectation. Um, but that was his main goal. And that is why um, his name is Josh and I don't know his last name. I just have read that his name is Josh. So uh, if you guys have already listened to it and you're like, this is his name. Like, I'm sorry. I can't hear you, but I feel like it starts with an H maybe. But the, um, 
creator of the True Crime Bullshit podcast, I would imagine, named his podcast because in the FBI interview tapes, um, when Keyes is explaining, like, you know, this is my motivation for giving information. Like, I don't give a shit about closure for people's families. Um, you know, this is just because it's going to benefit me and I don't want my kid to find out stuff about me. But he makes this comment where he's like, um, I don't want to come up in some type of true crime bullshit. You know, like those are his words. And he says that and he's like, you know, everybody's obsessed with this now. Like, I don't want to be some type of show or whatever. So joke was on you, buddy. Um, and I do like, this is why it's kind of convoluted. And I keep saying girlfriend, like this girlfriend, that girlfriend, you're probably like, do they have names? They do. Um, but I don't want to use them because they, especially his daughter is going to have to live with this, you know, um, just horrific stuff for the rest of her life. And those people are completely innocent. Like Israel Keys um, went to the grave. Spoiler alert, uh, Israel Keys is dead. Um, he went to the grave like adamant that his last girlfriend from Anchorage or that he lived with in Anchorage was completely clueless, had no idea what he was doing. Um, didn't want anybody to bother her. Like she had nothing to do with it. According to him, no knowledge. Um, he also said that like his families or his family, excuse me, were victims of his because of like what he's done and what they're going to have to be left with, you know, like, um, which is true. So anyway, I just don't say their names because I don't think that's fair. Um, anyway, got off on a little tangent. So he admits that this is an unrealistic, unrealistic expectation. And his own attorney was like really anti-death penalty. And he was like, I just want to represent myself. Uh, you know, like this guy. Uh, okay. Because, you know, just like his, his hero, um, Ted Bundy, did I ever tell you guys that, that that is his role model, Ted Bundy, <laughs> like those people, they're always smarter than everyone. So yeah. Um, over eight months, the FBI and Anchorage police department officers and, um, assistant U S attorney, Kevin Feldes, who insisted on being in like all the interviews. And in my notes, I wrote three question marks. Um, because I can't remember, like, I might misspeak here, but in Maureen Callahan's book, American Predator, uh, I'm pretty sure that they explain that this is, like, not legal. Um, and I don't know the laws about that. And I didn't, like, look it up. Um, but that kind of feeds into, like, some theories about Israel Keys too. Like, some people were like, oh, my God, like, Feldis being in there explains why. And he's, like, you know, a plant by the U.S. government, Israel Keys being the plant and just um, wild outlandish stuff, which maybe not so outlandish. Um, that doesn't matter. What I'm trying to tell you is, um, yeah, the assistant U S attorney was like always in these interviews. Um, he doesn't get painted in the most favorable light in the book. Um, cause like he kind of is not good at what he's doing. Like he has some redeeming moments that you're like, oh, that was really smart. Like, or they could have really used him to their advantage more. And by them, I mean the FBI. Um, like they could have 
used the way that Keyes reacted to Veldis, like to, you know, kind of, they could have used him more to their advantage, I think. Um, anyway, they all interviewed Israel Keyes multiple times. Um, I think there was a total of six, could be wrong, but they collected about 40 hours of tape. And a lot of this is out there um, online right now. You can watch it. You've probably seen some of it. And I think uh, there's like 13 hours still that they, ha they haven't released, um, like ever, publicly, transcripts, um, like nobody knows, which makes me be like, uh, what the hell, what's in that, <laughs> that they can't release that knowing what we know already. So maybe one day, uh, probably won't want to know, but, um, they brought him his dumbass Americanos and candy bars and cigars, like every time that they interviewed him, because that was like his conditions. Like, yeah, I'll talk if you, um, you know, give me my candy and my, and I can go smoke a cigar. Like you can hear him in the audio be like, did you get me my cigar? Did you bring a cigar? Do I get a cigar today? Or something like that. Um, which was really like a huge pain in the ass for them because it was like a big production to take them all the way. Like, you know, obviously you have to go outside. Um, but they would do it because they had nothing else to go off of. They had, they were getting the information that they had from him. Um, and he would ultimately just play games with them about giving up the information. Like, oh yeah, like I want to, you know, I don't feel like talking today after a while. Like, I just don't want to talk about that. I, I just don't feel like it. Um, so he was just a, a dick. He once told investigators, like I said, that he didn't care about the families having closure. Like he, that was nothing that he was saying was because he was like, oh, I should really let these families of these missing people, like find out what happened so that they can, you know, put everything to rest and, um, everyone can move on and I can die. Like, no, absolutely not. What he said is, and like, I don't really care. I'd rather picture, if it was me, I'd rather picture them on a beach somewhere instead of knowing what really happened to them. Um, so I'm, I'm chuckling because um, I, myself, was fooled by Israel Keys, And I will tell you more about that later. Because um, he's not, he's not like this like, oh, I don't kill um, single moms. I don't kill kids. Like, you know, I'm so, I have these moments of humanity shining through. <clears throat> Wrong. Um, so anyway, he would say things to them like, I'm not in here expecting special treatment when that is quite literally what he was asking for. <laughs> and he tells them like, the bottom line is that I get to make all the decisions in the end. Like, I'm not asking for special treatment, but could you give me the death penalty and can you um, expedite it and can you um, bring me cigars? So, fuck you, Israel Keys. Uh, in the beginning, he made it very clear that he only wanted to talk to Anchorage homicide detective Monique Dahl, whose husband actually became the Anchorage uh, Police Department chief in 2017. But she was like this blonde-haired, you know, attractive woman, and she knew exactly how to talk to Keys, and Keys was, um, you know, gross. And so he's like, I only want to talk to her. Um, he would do that all the time. Like, no, like, I don't want to talk to you, but I'll talk to her. Uh, and he tells investigators that he has been two different people for 14 years at that time, and not one person had ever truly known him. And he's like, all right, listen, I'll give you two bodies and a name 
if you give me an execution date. And um, that is when he tells them about a married couple from Vermont. And they immediately Google missing people because Keys loved to say that nobody would be found without his help. And that if anyone was found, it would be considered an accident. Um, in fact, he did claim that just one such thing happened. Um, that a body of one of his victims had been found and it was labeled an accidental death. And then like way later on, the mother of his child is like, you know what? We had a neighbor um, who I believe went missing and was found dead. Ruled an accidental death. I don't have all the details um, in my notes because I didn't, I just remembered that. Um, so I don't, I, I'm sure that I'm wrong on some parts, but she definitely was like, yeah, he could have been involved in that now that I look back. So a big yikes. Um, so they show uh, Keys this picture that they have pulled up on Google um, from missing people in Vermont. And they're like, is, is this the couple that you murdered? And it's a picture of Bill and Lorraine Career. And he simply says, yep. Uh, he had buried a kill kit, you know, his five gallon buckets that were filled with guns and ammo and silencers and zip ties and Drano and duct tape that he hid all around the country. Um, and they just remembered without writing any of it down where it was just remembered them for a couple years up in his fucked up brain. Uh, so he had buried one in Vermont about two years before the murders of Bill and the Rain Courier. And one night he's in Vermont and he's like, I'm going to go stake out these apartments across from this hotel that I'm staying at in Essex. Um, it's like pouring rain, um, big thunderstorm, I think. And Keyes is specifically looking for a man to kill. So remember how we've touched a little bit on his crimes um, being sexually motivated. His bisexual admission made some things make sense in the end. And so he's out looking for a man. And this guy pulls up in a yellow Volkswagen bug and he jumps out of the car and he has this newspaper over his head. Like he pulls up, gets out real fast and he's trying to like dart, you know, cause it's raining so much. And Keyes said that if this man had been just five seconds slower, he would have been the one that would have been it. But he didn't have enough time to like get himself out because the guy jumped out so fast. The craziest part of that to me, like, that's one of the most chilling things that I have ever heard about Israel Keys. Like, I know that it's not gruesome and brutal and, you know, because, um, like, I don't want to hear that stuff. But, like, I know you might be like, why is that so weird to you? You know, he did these horrible things. Like, what? Did, listen to what he did to Samantha. Why this is so weird to me is because he has always talked about how he just sits in the woods for hours and, like, stalks people. And they don't even know that he's there. You know, he's like, you can be sitting there staring at these people and they have no idea that I'm there thinking about if that's going to be my next victim or not. Um, and as someone who uh, goes into the woods several times a week, it's a little unsettling. Uh, so that is the craziest part of that story about that guy is that man had no fucking clue. He still, to this day, has no idea that it was him. I mean, he might people talking about, you know, a VW bug in a certain year in that area, like, okay, he might have an idea, but probably not. Probably has no fucking clue to this day that he was only five seconds away from losing his life in a horrific manner. So 
there's that. So Keys is like, well, shit, I got to start over. Uh, so he finds a house that fits his needs, uh, meets his criteria of no kids and no dogs. And for the longest time, I thought it was so strange that he had, like I said earlier, these just little glimpses of empathy. Um, but <laughs> a fool, a fool I was. Uh, he didn't, dogs were because like they were a hassle, not because he didn't mind killing them. Um, they just were a liability. Uh, no kids. <laughs> I, I thought, um, that, you know, because the mother of his child says, I did see a shift in his behavior once our daughter was born. Like he was a great dad. Um, his whole life changed once she was born. Yada, yada, yada. And, um, you know, it's been known that he's like, I don't kill single moms. Um, I don't kill children, but we find out that's probably not true. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to tell you guys, <laughs> got me good. Um, so he sits around outside and it's like an hour because he's waiting for a neighbor of the couriers who was outside smoking to go inside and the neighbor finally goes in and he's wearing a headlamp. So scary to me. There's like two types of headlamp people. You're either a meth addict, and I can say that, and you can't say anything to me because I know it to be fact, uh, or you're a killer. Like, that's it. There's no in-between. If you're not using it at your job, uh, I guess maybe if you're out in your garage, like, working on your truck and you don't have adequate lighting or in your driveway or something, like, okay, I'll make some exceptions. But generally speaking... People who are just outside with their headlamps on, they're doing meth or they're doing murders. Like, you can't convince me otherwise. So, he clicks on his headlamp, breaks a window, and he gains entry and heads straight into a sleeping Bill in the Rain Courier's bedroom. And that is where I'm going to be the biggest butthole and leave for part three, um, which will be released tomorrow. Girl Scouts Honor. I'm doing the little sign um, because it's like already halfway recorded. Um, so don't worry about that. But okay, good night, sweet dreams. <laughs> I'll talk to you tomorrow. Mm -hmm.